DevCom Podcast presents the Fireside Cast with your host, Lars Janssen. Welcome to this episode of our DevCom Podcast series, bringing you the DevCom experience year round. Today, I'm super excited for a very special episode with Silart Matushik. I hope I didn't butcher the name. Uh, he, the creator of a documentary about games behind the Iron Curtain in Hungary, uh, especially around the times of the 80s. Uh, super interesting topic to talk about, something we usually don't cover that much. So uh, very excited to, uh, to go a little deeper into that part. Silart, it's a pleasure to have you on board today. Welcome and thanks very much for joining us. Hi, thank you. So maybe to uh, kick things off, can you talk a bit about uh, yourself and how you got interested in, you know, covering the history of video game development in a very unlikely place, I would say, in, in, in the 80s? Uh, give us a brief introduction into what you have created, uh, who you are, and then, you know, we take it from there and dive a little deeper into, uh, you know, the topic. Okay, sure. So, yeah, I was born back in the 80s, 84. So... It was the time when the Commodore 64 was already on the market. But back in Hungary that day, behind the Iron Curtain and after the Iron Curtain was fallen and uh, the 90s uh, began, uh, Commodore 64 was still around here in Hungary. So that was the first computer I really uh, fall in love with. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, that was my childhood. So I have very good memories. <laughs> uh, <laughs> about these uh, Commodore 64 games and and yeah later on I went on university and uh, studied electrical engineering so I think it was a really big impact on my life that in my childhood I have the opportunity to, to play these uh, games on the C64 and then later on I started to learn uh, programming by myself and making music it's later on the PC but yeah Commodore C64 was the platform that really started me in this direction I think it was um, for, for many people, uh, Commodore 64 was a very important platform. I, I gotta say, I never owned one myself uh, here in Germany. Yeah, me, but, uh, me there. But I had so a friend I, I had... we always met at his place. So and we they, they had it in the attic, actually. So four of us, we were pretty much meeting every single afternoon. We met there. We played all kind of games. We got the games from like dubious places. I mean, I probably shouldn't say that we copied them from people, but we mm -hmm. did, basically. Yeah, so, like everyone uh, it's, uh, back in the Yeah, like, like everyone back in the day. Mm -hmm. so, some people, some of us didn't even know how we could buy those games i think in, in hungary probably wasn't even possible to yeah to buy them, right? it's it's interesting because i don't want to jump right there but because you mentioned this or new documentaries about this how people get games behind the iron curtain how people oh, get cool. computers behind the iron curtain so not about the game development which is the topic of our last documentary but how the gaming scene evolved here yeah. and all with the swappers and and copy parties and things like that oh yeah the, the, the copy parties i remember that yeah. years well. so did you have a favorite game during that time on the c64 uh yes uh, i think the first one i remember and i really liked was uh trailblazer it was mm -hmm. like you have to control a ball going through some kind of levels like it was uh, some perspective view uh, on the on the screen and you have to avoid uh, uh, objects on the road and you have to jump with the ball and something like that it was something like that i really enjoyed it cool. and later on of course the last ninja and 
Commando. Yeah, I mean, The Last Ninja was definitely a very, very good one. I mean, we're probably going to talk about it later in the, in the yes. episode uh, uh, today. So, I mean, from, from being a gamer, um, you at some point became a creator and and, uh, and looked into the history of, uh, of the, the video game making in that particular episode we, we're going to talk about today. Um, so how did that happen? I mean, you, you said you're self-taught as a programmer and uh, uh, you, you got interested in, in like how games are being made. How did you get in touch with the people that, uh, you know, made games back? at that time because i mean you were you were just born in 84 and these guys were already like uh, you know <laughs> making games and uh, yes. some of them uh, quite a bit older than you were yes so we started uh, making documentaries just in our free times back in 2008 mm -hmm. and uh, my friend gabor chipoy had an idea about uh, a documentary series or tv series uh, which is about modern subcultures like street art and uh, underground music and things like that and uh, it happened that he couldn't find enough uh, sponsor for it and i said okay we should just start shooting something and just for ourselves making some documentaries and that's how we started making documentaries and uh, the topics were always the things that were uh, we are interested in it so like he is an mc making uh, underground music mm -hmm. and uh, we made this uh, part uh, the first part of our documentary series then uh, i was thinking about how good would would be it if we could make a documentary about the demo scene here in hungary i don't know if you or the listeners know anything about the demo scene it's an underground digital subculture where yeah i know, I know the demo scene not in hungary in particular but yeah. i know the demo scene is still is still yeah, very yeah. strong yeah. so it's it's something i was very interested in and uh, then we made this documentary about the Hungarian demo scene mm -hmm. uh, and uh, then we made another it was all uh, also Gabor's topic about uh, underground music and then the fourth one about the game development I came up with the topic uh, when I was searching for a new topic and I was reading a book uh, it was a book written by uh, Tomás Beregi, a Hungarian writer, about the beginning of the video game industry, the first 50 years of the video game industry, not just about Hungary, but about the whole video game industry in the world. And there was a few pages about uh, Novop Trade and the Hungarian development behind the Iron Curtain. And I just thought, oh, I never heard about this. How this is possible? Because it's a it, it seems to me a, a huge story. It was just a few pages in this book. And then I thought, okay, I, I have to get in touch with these people and, and maybe it's worth to make a documentary about it. So I contacted the writer of the book, Tomás Beregi. I asked uh, a few contacts to the developers and then I contacted them and started to contact new and new and newer people and uh, then i saw oh it's a it's a amazing story so we should make the new episode of our documentary series about this thing yeah i so, think and, you, and it seems like uh you know having watched the episode it's you you seem to have found all the people that were back then involved like in all of that so yeah most uh, of most of them did yeah. you did you do that uh, all on your own or did you get help like uh <laughs> you know finding no we we, we got we got help like i have the contact to Gabor Reini, who was the founder of Novotrade, the company who started this whole thing. And uh, also they had uh, two or three main 
people. I, I mean the head of the studio and the head of the creative process. Uh, and I contacted them and asked them to tell me what do uh, they think, who should we contact? And they mm -hmm. said, okay, this guy, this guy, this guy. Uh, not everyone had, uh, they had, they hadn't had a contact to everyone. So I had to do some research, but finding a guy, yeah, I know another guy, I know another guy. And, you know, we just uh, started to find new and new contacts via yeah. these people. We I mean, I guess once you found a few of them, you probably, you know, opened the network up so that they knew people and so on and then brought more and more. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. how it yeah. worked. And after a while, we almost have contact to every people we should, we, we thought we should make an interview with them. And uh, then we started to shoot in the interviews and during the interviews we found new and newer stories and new and newer uh, people so we contacted them and uh, at the end we made uh, 47 interviews not just about the 80s but we made some uh, part of the film about the 90s mm -hmm. uh, but i guess we made uh, 20 25 interviews about this Nova trade era and and this 80s developments so let's maybe let's dive right into that topic i mean most of our audience right now probably have not heard uh about uh the the documentary and what has happened in the in hungary in the 80s so and i think it's a super exciting story um quite frankly when i saw the um the documentary you made uh it, i thought it was very impressive what um the teams uh that uh, worked with that company uh, Nova trade actually pulled off and how this all worked so Maybe you can give us a little bit of the, you know, the summary of your documentary. Obviously, you know, the, the main part is going one hours and 20 minutes, roughly, I think. Um, so uh, we can't cover it all right now. And you, we want to encourage you guys to, first of all, watch it and also support, uh, you know, the making of further of those uh, episodes or, or documentaries. But um, maybe you can, you know, give us, uh, you know, the basic, uh, uh, you know, the, the cool stories and, and uh, introduce us a little bit into what you cover um, in uh, the documentary. Yeah, so everything started uh, around uh, 1982. Uh, there was a, a man, Gabor Reni, who had uh, ideas about uh, new kind of business, like it was socialism back then in the 80s in Hungary. So there wasn't a lot to just form a company and, and make business. Uh, but uh, he had an idea to make something that uh, that can work something like a company in the west so like making a bit capitalism back in the socialism and uh, he was able to form uh, hungary's first joint stock company novotrade and it was possible because uh, the the government uh, never repealed the uh, trade law that was made back in uh, 1870 and uh, it was still in effect so there was a law still in effect back uh, in the 80s that uh, allowed Gabor Reni to form this Novotrade the first joint stock company in Hungary that was not uh, controlled or, or operated by the government uh, of course he had some connection to the government because his father was one of the main leader of the biggest Hungarian newspaper, 
that was controlled or operated also by the government. So he was not just a guy from the street. He had the connections, but still it was a big thing that uh, he managed to establish this uh, form of company. And uh, uh, before he uh, made this company, he was uh, working on project that uh, were uh, some kind of uh, basic uh, computer technique or, or electrotechnique was involved, like a, a game that was uh, made uh, like, a, I don't know, a, a basic uh, handheld console game, but it was really basic. Uh, and things like that. So he had uh, the opportunity to work with uh, talented people who can uh, develop such kind of things. So he know guys who were able to make uh, computer programs and things like that. And uh, one of his uh, friend, uh, Robert Stein, who fled to England, England uh, back in the 1950s, uh, visited him and uh, he said okay i have uh, a very good friend back in the uk uh, named john baxter who was the marketing manager of the english commodore company and we want to make uh, commodore 64 games because it's just now out on the market it was back in uh, 1982 and uh, robert stein know that uh, gabor Rainey had these talented people around him and uh, he said, okay, maybe we can make a good business uh, around this. You have the talented people. I have the connection to the West with my connection company and with my uh, friend, John Baxter. So let's start and make uh, computer games for the Commodore 64. So Gabor Rainey told, okay, we made a, make a competition uh, to getting ideas for uh, video games. And uh, in the beginning of uh, 83, they made a competition uh, and it was announced in the one and only Hungarian TV channel at that time. So I think everyone in Hungary know about it. And uh, in a few weeks, they got like uh, more than a thousand ideas like storyboards and, and things like that. And they started to select it. Okay, what can we do and what can't? can't. And uh, then they selected like uh, uh, hundred ideas. They sent it to the uh, Commodore UK and uh, they just picked up, I don't know, 10 of these uh, stories. And so they started to develop uh, these games, these first 10 games in 83. So did the, did the people in, in Hungary at that point uh, um, have access to, or how did they get access to the hardware they needed um, to actually make those games? Yeah, that's an interesting thing because there was the, the Commodore 64 was still on the COCOM list at that time. So it was not allowed to uh, import it. To, Can you quickly uh, explain what the COCOM list is? Yeah, a COCOM list was made by the Western uh, countries. Uh, it consisted 
uh, or it listed the computers and computer parts and CPUs that are not allowed to sell to uh, Eastern uh, mm -hmm. countries because it can be used for uh, weapons and for rocket science and I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's not uh, it would be not a good thing if the Russian got it. Of course they <laughs> could smuggle in it, but uh, yeah. So it was not allowed to. Uh, sell these things to uh, the countries behind the Iron Curtain. So they had to smuggle it in. Mm -hmm. So they started to smuggle in computers, uh, like they put it in uh, the luggages between the t-shirts and <laughs> things <laughs> like that. And uh, they got the first, I don't know, five or ten uh, C64s. And uh, that's what they used to start developing the games. And uh, they had the serial number 0002 back here in Hungary. That was made, I think, in the UK or in West Germany. I don't know which was started first in Europe. Yeah. So the, the very early machines that came from the uh, UK were here in Hungary. Uh, because of the good connection with the Commodore UK. And uh, they had this first f five or ten computers, and then they were starting to find uh, developers. Uh, they had some connections, because I mentioned this earlier, handheld things that they developed. Uh, and of course, a lot of young guy just popped up and said hey i just don't i don't just have a good idea to make a, a video game but i really want to make it yeah. because i am studying uh, programming at the university of course it was a, a whole different thing because 8-bit computers were so new that at the universities they were learning still this big COBOL system and big tape computers and things yeah. like that but they had the knowledge how to make computer programs and they just had to uh, find the ways how they can program the Commodore 64 which was a bit hard because in the first uh, batch that they get the computers they didn't get the manuals so they yeah, had that's what to, I wanted to ask because it they, seems they had like, to reverse like they, engineer. They had to start from from scratch because they, I, I guess, they didn't get support. I mean, now you know, in, in modern times, you, if you develop for new hardware like next gen consoles, you get all that level of support from the actual manufacturer. But back in the day, I think these guys were on their own, right? I mean, they had to figure out how to work with the system without yes. having any any support. La la later, they got manuals from Germany or or the UK, but in the first time when they got this first five or than uh, machines than they didn't have. So they just started to reverse engineer it and then start to make uh, small programs with it and they just find out how to program it and how to use it. And uh, they were really talented people because, you know, back in the 80s in Hungary, there were not a, too many ways to use your brain. <laughs> I mean, if you were a very talented people, you could go to the university and make something there or go to a, I don't know, a, a, a factory and, and program small things on the automation in the in the factory. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was not a big thing. You couldn't go just to the NASA and make uh, rocket yeah. science. So it was something that was new and a, a new possibility for the talented people to start and make something out from nothing.
Yeah, I saw and in the documentary that a lot of the people were actually mathematicians, right? Uh, yes, that, yes, uh, most of them. Because, you know, at that time there was no, yeah, there was this programmer mathematicians, as I mentioned, but uh, usually uh, electrical engineers and uh, mathematicians mm. were the guys who, who started to make video games because they had some knowledge about computers, what is a memory, what is a yeah. CPU and how it works. And then they just started to get in touch in, in the, or getting out the, the C64. And yeah, after a year, or I think it was not a whole year, they had the first, I don't know, five or 10 games ready and it was presented in the uk and and they sold to uk i, I think the first five or ten games were uh, published by commodore mm -hmm. and then they just started to make games to other game publishers like ocean and uh, mirrorsoft in the uk and then later on they contacted the american publishers like activision epics and they made games for them as well I, so, I guess after a while they, they build a reputation, obviously. So we, can you um, talk a bit more about how Novo Trade was actually working on the inside? Because what I found interesting in the documentary is that uh, Novo Trade was working with all those teams, those distributed teams uh, in, in, in Hungary. So, uh, you know, people came together and uh, as far as I understood, they were working in little units on, on those particular games, a lot of them dedicating their lives to it, it seems. There was this, there yes. was this one quote in there that uh, either you had to have... Uh, an amazing wife or girlfriend or you better be single otherwise you know it would be it would be very difficult to uh to actually pull this off so uh how did that structure look like because novo trade itself was not actually developing the games but they were they were hiring those teams that actually uh that that worked on the games right yes novo trade was a company that uh, dealt with a lot of things so game development was only just one thing they mm. did they they did uh, new inventions or or they they did just that they gave the people possibility like money and and maybe te mm. technical things to to make something to make something new to make something uh, innovative so they just made possible people to make things and it was like with computer games as well they made possible for people to make computer games like they had computers and uh, in the very begin beginning it was like okay uh, there are two or three people who is seems to be able to make a video game so uh, novotrade gave them one uh, c64 and they used it uh, uh, the one game, the one uh, machine. So like the programmer started to programming on it. And after two days, they gave the computer to the other guy who made some graphics on it uh, and, and also some music, maybe other guy. In the first time, there was like two or three guys in a team, not more. And uh, they used the same computer. And uh, there was no office. There was no uh, fixed place. Uh, they worked at home and so one week worked at one guy and then they just went to another guy or when there was something in the development that needed the third guy then they gave the computer to the third guy and uh, they made that things like the music for the next week and then they went back to Novotrade and they just showcased how they 
how the games look like and how the development is going. Uh, and they got some feedback and they then went home and just continued to working on it. So there was no office, there was no work time, there was nothing. There was just uh, a few people in a, in a group who just used that one computer and when they finished, they finished. And later on, they started to form uh, a bit bigger teams, maybe like five people. Uh, uh, and uh, they just rented uh, apartments, so they still don't didn't have uh, official offices like Novo Trade. Uh, just had a basement, I think, for yeah. many, many years. And it was just for operating the company, not for developing. Later on, they uh, also rented uh, other basements for these people and apartments, and uh, they just moved in. So they were living in that apartment, working on the game, and they just really rarely left the apartment. So maybe if they had to go out to eat something and then just went back and that was all day long and all night long developing the games in these apartments or at home or, or at the basement that was rented for them and uh, it was really interesting because their whole life was developing games like they didn't go home just i don't know once a week or once in two weeks just to say hello to their family that they are still alive and then they went back <laughs> to that basement or to the apartments and they just continued to developing the games and uh, after they were ready they gave it to the uh, novo trade and they sent out to the uk or the us do, and... do you know how how long they usually worked on a game like this? I mean, I know modern day production timelines, but at, uh, at that point, like, you know, if people were, I, mean, I would assume that you can't have this lifestyle forever. You probably at some point have to, you know, get out of it and, and spend some time with your family again. Yes. But uh, these guys seem very, very committed. So I was wondering how long they usually took as a team to, to finish a game. I, I think in the first uh, period, it was like a few months. Mm -hmm. So three months six months something like yeah. that and uh, then of course they started a new game <laughs> so i don't know yeah. <laughs> that's right <laughs> I, yeah. uh, mo most of these guys were young so like 20 something yeah so, so when they he, still uh, don't uh, of course some of them had the family and some of them not but uh, yeah they still managed to do it so when they got together as a as a team and then worked together in those uh, in apartments or basements and so on, did they still only work with one computer, or at that time did they have multiple? Uh, uh, after a time, to... after a time, they had more. Mm -hmm. So the after I don't know in two thousand nine, uh, so eighty three they started it, and for uh, that year I think that was the the thing that they had only one for a group, mm -hmm. but then when it just uh, started to grow and grow and uh, more and more productions uh, started uh, i mean more and more games they started to develop they got uh, smuggled in more and more <laughs> uh, commodores and uh, i think after 85 the commodore 64 was not anymore on the cocom list so it was a bit easier to to get in, in the country 
And Novotrade also started to uh, sell computers here, so import computers uh, when it was uh, legal. And uh, then it was no problem to, to get these computers. And uh, of course, later on in the uh, middle of the 80s, like 85, 86, 87, they were working on uh, PCs making games for Commodores and for other mm -hmm. platforms. So they started to use this cross-platform developing things, which was, I think, a, a really big thing back in that time. Yeah. So even back in 84, uh, they developed the Eureka, uh, the game for the mark, and they used uh, a virtual machine or a virtual language to make the game both for the Spectrum and for the Commodore. Yeah, that's so, what I heard in the documentary, and I found it very interesting that they said, like, well, it was not the time to work with machine code anymore because you, you had to simultaneously bring it to different platforms. It's a little bit the logic that you have with uh, game engines today. You know, you, you, you have to yes. make sure that you use something that you can then use to deploy it to different machines. But back in the time, these guys came up with their own language, um, and, and that's something that, I've, that I found pretty amazing. Um, that they Yeah, because the deadline was so close. Uh, it was not possible to develop it on different CP for different CPUs in different uh, machine codes. So that's why they made their own language. And uh, most of the part of the game was developed on that language. And then, of course, they had to make uh, a bit uh, fixing on the actual computer. So yeah. they used machine code when they finalized the, the game but uh, but it was much more faster than making two separate teams and and working on the same game but on two separate uh, platforms yeah, to me it seems in general that um you know listening to to the to the different interviews and the documentary it seems like that people were coming up with very creative ways of, of solving problems on those computers and uh, tackling challenges that even, for example, the Commodore engineers thought were, were impossible to do. So, uh, you know, there was this funny quote in the documentary where, I, I don't know who said it, one of the developers said like, well, they didn't tell us it was impossible, so we just assumed it was possible and simply did it. And then they were wondering afterwards, yeah. how did these guys do it? So it seems there was a lot of uh, technological advancements in there that, that uh, the Hungarian developers actually put in the game like, like uh, having, I remember this the, the 3D maze, obviously. Then, uh, or for the first time, having something uh, like a scrolling, fully scrolling background, and these these kind of elements. So uh, I, I thought that was pretty cool, and I can imagine how proud they must have felt, you know, working on this. Yeah, it's it's because because uh, as I thought, there was no manual at the beginning. There was no uh, companies who had. Uh, strong connection with the, with the computer factoring companies like there was no one who taught them how to do it and they have to just find out the ways how we can do things and that's why they didn't follow the way uh, what the engineers uh, taught them like the engineers who made the computers they just had this computer and they have to find everything out from scratch and so they found uh, such things that the engineers never haven't have told wouldn't have told about it that it's possible to make with this computer and uh, so that's why so if you have a very little uh, source 
of of things then you have to make uh, very genius things to to be able to make things because you don't know how to do it so you just found out by myself by yourself how to do it and that's how you can find very end and unusual ways to do things yeah i think you, you have to be really creative to uh come up with those solutions and it led to some of uh, some really great games um that uh, we could see in those like early 80s uh that were that were being made there so if we if we take a little further i mean you already talked about like uh, 86 87 uh you know in that area it seems like that was a bit of the golden age for uh for nova trade and development scene there because like computers were more widely av available in hungary at the same time there was some experience uh, with the, with the games so how did how did it go on i mean obviously there was a there was a huge um impact that uh, the hungarian development teams had on development for those platforms what happened like later in the 80s and into the 90s how how did that look like yeah so somewhere around uh, 87 88 uh there was a change in the company i mean gaborini who led Novotrade, just uh, saw what this game developing part to Novotrade International or, or they made Novotrade International in America and they just saw it to Gergely Chasser who was one of the main uh, developer he had his own studio back in the 80s and he was working for Novotrade and uh, Novotrade just uh, saw them this whole department this uh, this game development department and uh, uh, Gergely Chasser just uh, started to form this company to a Western-like company. Like they uh, rented offices and people had to go into the office and work there. And they started to make a professional way, not just uh, in the question of uh, how they work, like in, in offices, but uh, they made a more professional infrastructure, like uh, uh, really uh good uh, game development uh, architecture like uh, uh, computers with uh, uh yeah okay <laughs> so i uh, like like build machines and stuff like that or uh, like yeah i mean this uh, development kits okay that was the word kits. sorry <laughs> <laughs> development kits yeah. Uh, that was the word I was uh, looking for. So it was more professional. And uh, they had the connection to the publishers, uh, not just in Europe uh, at that time, but in America, uh, in the USA. And uh, they started to expand the connections. And they had uh, a guy in America who was the, I don't know, the 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 manager or the producer of the uh, uh, company in america and they started to contact big companies like saga america mm -hmm. and they was very good in it and uh, they just managed to get uh, uh, contracts from saga america and they started to work uh, for them and they made uh, the first game item was the uh, California games uh, it was a port not the original California games but it was a port to Sega and uh, it was just so, so good that uh, then they said okay we will work with you uh, for a long 
in a long term. And uh, they started to develop the Echo the Dolphin. That was a really big hit. I think more than a million uh, was sold worldwide. Yeah, I think Echo yeah. the Dolphin is definitely a game that a lot of people um, uh, remember from, from back in the time. I think it was uh, pretty popular in, in many countries. Yes, and uh, it was developed back t- here in Hungary. I think four or three people made it. And uh, of course, because it was also a big hit, then uh, Sega just invested in uh, Novotrade International. At that time, it was called uh, Appaloosa Interactive. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they made a close connection with Sega America and they started to make uh, more and more games for them. And they were working on such big IPs than uh, Jurassic Park, the Lost World Jurassic Park, yeah. then Batman and Robin, uh, Star Trek and uh, Garfield and I don't know, many, many big IPs. And uh, that was, I think, the the early 90s uh, middle of the 90s so it was the second golden age for Novotrade or Appaloosa Interactive So when we uh, when we look at the um, the documentary that you made, there's one uh, particular part about uh, Nintendo that uh, I wanted to briefly talk about <laughs> as well. Uh, I don't recall what year that was. Was that like in the mid '80s or what was the? Yes, yes, it was around '86. Yeah, so um, I thought it was pretty, maybe you can share a little bit of what happened there because these guys were uh, apparently pitching games to Japan or going to Japan to, you know, try to find people to, to market the games. And the question they got like, what about Nintendo? Do you develop for Nintendo? And then some interesting things happen afterwards. Maybe you can share some, yes. some insights into what they do. So just like in the US, uh, they uh, started to find partners in Japan because they thought, okay, it's also a big uh, market for video games. And uh, they just traveled to Japan and uh, went to these Japanese publishers, publishing companies, and uh, they just showcased their games. They had this Carabaos, this 3D maze game, and and they had uh, many other amazing games. And they thought, yeah, okay, okay, it's really amazing, really amazing. But do you have something for Nintendo? because we are dealing only with Nintendo games here in Japan. And they said, oh, no, no, no. And they went to another Japanese company. They said, yeah, yeah, these are really, really good games. But do you have something for Nintendo? (laughs) And uh, so on and so on. And they thought, "Okay, okay." then we start to make Nintendo games. And they went to Nintendo and they told them, "Okay, we want to make Nintendo games. Uh, please give us the license and uh, give us the development kit. And Nintendo said, uh-uh, that's not the way how it works. We pick only a few companies who can get the license and no one else. So we won't give you a license. And okay, they thought, but we will make games for Nintendo. So they went uh, to the market in Japan and bought a few uh, NES, uh, NES. Mm-hmm. I think uh, that was the uh, Nintendo machine at that time. Yeah. And uh, they came back to Hungary and they gave them to the talented people who were making these video games. So, okay, here are this machine. We know nothing about it, but we want to make games for that. So they just started to reverse engineering it. 
and uh, they found out how they uh, works and how they uh, manage the memory and how the CPU works. And I, I think it was um, a mostly common known CPU. So after they found out that it is, then it was a bit easier to reverse engineer it. And after uh, a few months uh, and, and many, many uh, all day long working hours, <laughs> Uh, they just managed to to reverse engineer and they had a development kit for Nintendo and they then could make uh, games for Nintendo and after it they went back to Japan and went to the publishers and they showed them the games and of course they all uh, they told them okay but do you have something for Nintendo and they said yes we have <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. it was just such a surprise that <laughs> they <laughs> barely care say anything <laughs> but then uh, they just started to make Nintendo games and uh, even Konami was surprised when they first knocked on their door and told them we have a game for compute, uh, Nintendo uh, machines, do you want to publish it? And they say, how, how, how did you manage it? Because you don't have license for it. Oh yeah, we don't have, but we have the game. <laughs> <laughs> it's just I, I love the uh, you know the spirit of uh, of invention in that case you know spending all that time to reverse engineer this and then you know I would have loved to see how that development kit looked like it's probably you know a lot of wires and duct tape and whatever yeah to, yeah yeah to, sure to sure make it work, so. so it was not nothing something like a spe uh, official development kit so. <laughs> But it's 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 really it's one of my highlights of the of the documentary that uh, you know they were so uh, so hungry for creating games and uh, and and working on the platforms that matter that they that they even went through all those obstacles. Yeah, and they had this work. attitude that hey, you can't say us that we can make mm -hmm. these things. Okay, we just figure it out and we will make it, and they made it. And uh, yeah, it was also that they had uh, really talented uh, hardware guys. Who, who could make this happen. Later on, they made uh, uh, special hardware for second development. And uh, that's how they could make the development not on the computer screens, but also real time, they, the, the graphics artist who made uh, the graphics for Echo the Dolphin could watch the, the drawing process on an actual TV. You know, because the game was played on a TV, not on a computer screen. Mm. And uh, the colors were different. And uh, that's why they could make so really good looking games, because they made uh, the hardware for a real time uh, screening, because they made it on computers, not on the console, yeah. you know. And after they made it on the computer and the cartridge was done, the gamers were playing it on a TV, not on a computer screen. And uh, the chorus were different, but they made uh, this this hardware thing to be able to develop on, on, on TVs. And that's why they could make so good looking games. Cool. So uh, talking about, uh, you know, the kind of the, the final days of Novo Trade a little bit. We already covered like the 90s and what, what happened there. Uh, maybe to, to kind of, you know, wrap up that Novo Trade story. Um, I mean, I, I guess the company went on for a little longer and then like in the early 2000s, uh, you know, not, not too much was happening anymore. Maybe you can talk a little bit about like, uh, you know, the last five to 10 years of the, of the company. Uh, yes, yeah, so they were uh, making this really big IPs for Sega uh, and uh, there is no 
not too many information about the end of 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 the company because uh, the two main guy uh, Gergely Chassar and uh, the other guy in the US who made these contracts with the Sega and was also uh, had uh, had some ownership in the in the company they they I don't know how they just uh, started to fight with each other and uh, they went to the court and there was a really awful end of this of this whole story because uh, uh, at that time Sega America was also uh, had had some trouble so financially they didn't had that money so they didn't uh, give too much uh, uh, production or, or game development to to Novotrade or, or Appaloosa so this whole thing just started to to fall on uh, down and uh, after a while they just uh, they just split up uh, the, the, the whole two main guy and uh, i couldn't make interview with these guys because they d didn't want to speak about these things so i don't really know what was the real reason this company uh, just uh, went off but uh, there there was something between these two uh, owner and and they just fight for years with each other uh, maybe for money or i don't know but uh, yeah so something uh, happened between them and also sega was in a down period that time and and that's why after a while uh, they didn't get uh, too much contract from sega and and so I think it was discontinued went. in 2006 or 2008. Yeah, around right? 2006. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so it's good. still a, a, a huge time because yeah. it was formed uh, back in the beginning of '83, and uh, they just stopped it in 2006. Yeah, I mean, over 20 years of, uh, of development. It's, yes. it's, it's just amazing. Like you said in the beginning of, uh, of our, our episode today is that a lot of people are uh, probably not even aware of, uh, you know, th that this happened. So I think it is uh, yes, because it's, it's really interesting to talk about this to make people aware because they might know even some back of in the Hungary, games that Nobody knows made, about yeah. it. Yeah, so even back here in Hungary, because at that time, computer games were sold to the West because here in Hungary there was not any market for those you know as you said we just copied the games and nobody could afford especially here back in Hungary behind the iron curtain to buy original games and you could buy a few at Novotrade uh, but not not so many so people don't didn't really know about it and uh, still people don't really know about these days and uh, that's why I thought it is important to make this documentary so now people can uh, see how big industry it was here in back back here in Hungary and how big uh, computer games were made here in Hungary like the second part of uh, Impossible Mission and uh, Echo the Dolphin Oscar Bells uh and uh yeah and it was not, not, not advertised also, here um, imperium galactica was also like a, a yeah yeah it was made uh, by another team so it was not connected to Novotrade. Mm -hmm. it was made by 
16 and 17 years old guys. Okay, at that time when they finished Imperium Galactica, they were older. The first game they finished, uh, they were end of day teenagers. It was uh, the Reunion, it was on Amiga mm -hmm. and also on PC. And then they started to make uh, Imperium Galactica. And uh, at the end of the 90s, in the beginning of 2000, they uh, just released Imperium Galactica 2. And I think that was the one of the biggest success of Hungarian games after Novotrade successes. Yeah. So it was it was uh, a huge success so what, all around all, all around the world. And they they started as yeah teenagers making computer games in one of the guys basement so it's it's all, it's all about the basements right yes, yes. <laughs> so um how does the i mean obviously it's, it's a super fascinating story and everything that happened from the 80s all the way to like the early 2000s um now fast forward a little bit to to the times right now can you even though you've been doing a documentary about the past can you give us a quick overview of how does the development landscape look like in hungary these days i mean right now 2020 what, what's the What's the situation? Do you still have uh, many game independent game development studios? Uh, maybe you can share a few insights into the market. Yeah, uh, I am not really deep into it, but I can mm. speak about these things. Uh, yeah, we have a few studios now. There are some uh, divisions of international studios here, like Gameloft and uh, other bigger international studios here. And uh, we have some... Uh, own Hungarian studios here, like uh, Neocore Games. He they made the Warhammer mm -hmm. game in the last years and uh, and other really popular games. And we have the Zen Studios. They made the uh, pinball games. Mm -hmm. I mean, with all these IPs like Marvel and Star Wars and right. things like that. We have uh, Invictus Games. Uh, they made also. I think they, they they make now I think mobile games, but I'm not sure they made uh, games for PC before, uh, like Insane. It was a it was a very uh, good uh, off-road car racing game, like a very with a very good uh, physics, how the the car uh, crash and how how the car moves, and uh, it was published by Codemasters, and. Uh, we have also smaller indie studios. Uh, there is a game now in that will be released in a, in a few weeks, I guess. It's called Chicken Police, and oh, yeah. it's made by a few Hungarian guys, and uh, it will be a, a noir tied uh, click and point and click uh, uh, game. I, with, I love the game animals. actually uh, because yeah, you know, we, you know, I, I know the game because uh, our so I mean I I'm kind of hosting these podcasts for Defcom, but mm -hmm. on the side, you know, in my main job, I'm work for uh, you know a bigger uh, publishing organization as part of the Embracer Group, uh, and um, uh, you know THQ Nordic um, uh, slash uh, Handy Games uh, is actually publishing Chicken Police uh, yes, as yes. a game, and they're you know friends of ours, they're a sister mm -hmm. company, so, uh, yeah, so you know we, about it, we yeah. do know uh, Chicken Police, and I love the art style, and I think it's a great game. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm really looking to try it. I, I tried the, the demo back a year or two years ago when they had a, a booth at a Hungarian event and it was really promising. So I'm really 
looking for it to to try once yeah, so it's, it's same here it's uh it's a, it's a very interesting twist to, to that so, yeah, so so some some other uh, smaller independent uh, crews are here uh, making games for mobile or for pc console there were a few other i don't know i can't remember the names but every year there is one or two hungarian mm -hmm. crew just pop up and and show some games yeah so um obviously we've we've covered a lot today in terms of the uh the documentary that you made and uh you know and all those cool stories so for people that want to learn more about it where the where should they go to how do they find the documentary online and how can they support your work going forward with maybe more documentaries coming in the future yeah so it can be found on youtube uh just search for Molman for long pay long play molman for long play okay yes and there is also a website molman4.com mm -hmm. and uh, it's on vimeo where you can uh, get uh, with get the film with lots of extra extras and that's the place where uh, everyone can support us if they want mm -hmm. because on youtube you can watch the film for free uh, but if you want to watch some extras and then support us with some bucks, then on Vimeo you can find it. Also, there is a link on the website. So if you if someone visit uh, moreman4.com, then uh, they can find the link to the Vimeo and uh, they can support there by buying this uh, version with uh, seven hours of extras. Seven hours is a lot of content. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, they they also can find there our second documentary, which is also free on YouTube. But there are also extras for our second documentary about the demo scene, mm -hmm. which you can find on YouTube. So, yeah, that's the place where you can find all these uh, extra interviews and and uh, everything that we could put on <laughs> there. So if you if you found this as interesting as I did, uh, you know, dear audience, then please uh, go to moleman4.com and uh, check it out. Um, you know, feel free to support this. Uh, I think it is a very fascinating story that uh, I'm happy, uh, Silard, you got the chance to talk about today, uh, and I uh, hope that uh, our audience enjoys uh, listening to those details and will check out the documentary. I was definitely fascinated by it, uh, and I think it's uh, it's a not too widely covered part of video games history that uh, I'm glad you. Uh, you did this amazing piece of work on uh, Silard. So thank yeah. you very much. Um, thank you for, uh, for the opportunity. For, for, for Thank you very much for joining me today. Um, and uh, uh, I hope uh, that uh, you guys will definitely check it out. It's uh, very, very interesting. Thanks again. Uh, thank you for listening to an episode of DevCom Podcast. More exclusive content at patreon.com slash devcom underscore C-O-N-F. Produced by Sven Fossi. Executive producer, Stefan Reichardt. Music by WeLoveIndies.com. Supported by Bayer Dynamic. High-quality headphones, microphones, and conference systems for professional musicians and gamers. Made in Germany. 